0: this episode, we have Dr. Hazel Kiesel, and we are talking all things the back vaginal birth after caesarean. Hazel is a lecturer of midwifery at Western Sydney University, Australia. Hazel has worked in midwifery group practices, an Aboriginal medical service, a variety of hospital settings, and as a privately practicing midwife in both city and regional locations. Hazel's passion for VBAC followed her own experience of having a VBAC with her daughter in 2008, and since then has published research on women's experiences of having a VBAC at home, and on her PhD work exploring women's experiences of planning a VBAC across Australia. Hazel is currently the lead researcher on Australia's largest survey on women's experiences of maternity care, the Birth Experience Study. Hazel is passionate about improving support for women during pregnancy, birth and the early transition to mothering. We asked Hazel all the questions you've been asking us for months to discuss. So here it is, folks, the topic you've been waiting for. Hazel definitely left us with some golden nuggets. You'll want to have your pen and paper ready. So here we go into the bubbling cauldron of goodness. I'm Katie James, and this is the Midwives' Cauldron Podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Dr. Rachel Reed. Listen in as we hubble, bubble, toil and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood, midwifery, birth and lactation. So go on, subscribe now and hear us on your favourite podcast host. Good morning. Good afternoon. Hazel, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us in the cauldron. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it is wonderful. And we have had lots of messages to say, please, can you get Hazel on and talk about VBAC? And we are finally here and we have you with us. So this is really exciting. What I would love for you to do is just for anybody out there who might not know who you are or have heard of your work, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this field of sure. work.
1: Okay, so I'm Hazel Keedle and I'm a lecturer of midwifery at the School of Nursing Midwifery at Western Sydney University, um, based at Parramatta. And I um and I myself live in the cold blue mountains, which I, I must say I do love. Um, how I got into where I am now as a lecturer is I came through the research path, and so I've been a nurse and then a midwife for over 25 years now and in midwifery worked in a whole load of different models of care probably almost every type of one you could think of Um, and after having my own vaginal birth after cesarean Back in two thousand and eight, I got interested in VBAC, um, and I did meet. I had a chance meeting with Professor Hannah Darlin, and I shared my story. She was at a community forum, and so I shared my story at this community forum. And she said, "You know, you need to research this." And then um, there were some emails over about a year, and then I then I finally um, said, "Okay, let's do this." And I started my research journey, doing some. Higher degree um, studies. And that's how I came on my journey. I just fell in love with research and the topic. Um, and then with academia. And I absolutely love being a lecturer and teaching and researching and everything that goes with it.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: So that was a nice
0: journey where you've been through all of the, the parts of midwifery. And then that happened chance, happened chance, happened stance. I don't know which one it is meeting <laughs> with Hannah Darlin, who came on to the podcast a few months ago, mm-hmm. and I, I smiled when you said that because I can imagine her just like, like weaving in everybody who she can, who she goes, oh, maybe they would want to do some research, yeah. and she and she caught you, she got you, and
1: she um, did, she did, and she hasn't been able to get rid of me since then, so she might not doing that. <laughs> I've
0: stuck on. (laughs) You've stuck, yeah, but you've done some some awesome research and stuff that really needs to be looked at, like VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean, is one of those areas that is so important for us to talk about because we know that the cesarean rates are increasing and we know that a huge amount of cesareans are done because of a first-time cesarean. And your research really looks into... The model of care and how we can best support women who go through a VBAC and because what we're seeing really globally as far as I'm aware is that we might be going a lot of women are choosing to have a VBAC but are not actually achieving that goal. Um,
1: Yeah yeah absolutely and I also found when I got interested in feedback that midwives didn't really know very much about it and it wasn't really in the on the midwife um, arena. There wasn't very much taught about it um in in midwifery courses and I think there was a lot of thought that this was kind of in the too hard basket uh, or it's only for the obstetrics to kind of look at and oh. the more i learned about it, the more i realized actually midwives have a vital role to play when it comes to supporting women planning a feedback
2: absolutely and there's increasing women having feedback because you know the cesarean section rates are what are they now what a
1: third of women absolutely and our feedback rates are so low um mm. but that's not due to women not wanting to have it it's it's not being able to have a VBAC at the end um and the lack of support and the journey and I didn't really know I didn't really know anything about that journey I I had my own VBAC and it was challenging um but it was amazing and and you know being able to push her out of my vagina I just felt so strong after having quite a traumatic cesarean just a year beforehand and we have, that had impacted my mental health negatively but then I kind of thought well was mm. it just because I'm a bit of a birth nerd I'm a midwife my granny was a midwife like it's <laughs> you know it's kind of ingrained in me about the importance of of birth I thought so maybe is it just me or are there other women out there but I also struggled when I had my back in the hospital with a lot of coercion during whilst being in labor like exactly when a woman shouldn't be getting that I was, and I had mm-hmm. to fight, and that left a bit of a a bitter taste as well because it made me think well i 'm a midwife, they knew I was a midwife, okay, they might have known me as a bit of a troublesome midwife, <laughs> um, but they also trained there like they knew who I was, wow, yeah, and I had to struggle, and I just thought how could how does any woman without that knowledge how do they manage to have a feedback and that 's when I started looking at our rates being as low as they are, and that hasn 't really increased um significantly so I yeah I kind of got interested and realized this was a big area that was just wasn't being spoken and even today when I go to conferences and I and I go through the whole list of all the presentations and even all the poster presentations and and I just came back from Pazan's this year Mm -hmm. um just a couple of weeks ago and there was nothing from VBAC except for one poster which was mine and wow. that just made me think, it's just not a hot topic. People are just kind of like, trying to pretend it's not important. <laughs> I'm really so shocked by that? that. I don't know why. I think it is a bit of a crossover between who who owns VBAC, like who it's important to. Is it midwifery? Mm. Is, it, is it obstetrics? Um, and really not much of a voice from women. Um, mm. Then there's a lot of... I think there's a lot of politics involved as well. There's a lot of blame on women, like women are choosing to have a cesarean when you know that that's kind of a belief mm. that really isn't there or isn't really substantiated in research. Um, and when I look at how hard the journey is and the amount of coercion and how hard it is to get to that point... I just almost think healthcare providers don't even want to address that, don't want to address some of the ugly stuff that happens. Um, be, because it's, yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to go on that journey if you don't have a supportive team around you. Um, I mean, I remember being at one, uh, one I was invited to speak at, at a, a one-day conference and in the morning, I couldn't believe it, we travelled all the way to this, this regional location it was so excited to speak to to the midwives there and in the morning the person that um stood up went <laughs> said they don't see the hype about v-back it should be all about preventing the first caesarean and said that no it, like, uh, did they really look at the program because it was like okay how are we going to follow that and, so, um, that and next up stay. is hazel yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> but that person didn't stay for the afternoon so i could say exactly what i thought um and i said you know we we, it's not a one or the other it's not like we prevent the primary uh-huh. or we support VBAC it's not one or the other it's mm. actually about doing both yes we need to prevent the primary but the horse has already bolted that door yeah. is wide mm. open you know mm-hmm. like we also then need to go and help women who have already had that cesarean it's oh. not just going to cancel one isn't going to cancel out the other we Absolutely. actually need to address both and that's mm. how I kind of said it you know in in that in that presentation but i also wonder then is that how some people think that they don't think feedback is important because we should only be addressing the primary cesarean
2: which is interesting because we're never going to get to a point where no women are having cesareans you know no are we really realistically
1: we'll be right back
0: I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mom, dad, parent, or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear-jerking, fist-pumping and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially and physically. Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the Global Lactation Clinic. Whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey, I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour, your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together.
1: No, absolutely not. And I think if we don't really recognise what does reduce cesarean section rates are actually also really beneficial for VBACs as well. Mm. You know, if we if we look at models of care, then actually if we approach that, we're potentially going to do both. And you know that's not that's not really rocket science, Um, but yeah, I don't know why it's not so popular. But um, I think it's a wonderful subject, (laughs) and I'll keep flying that feedback flag.
2: Good on you. It is. But do you think it's because research tends to focus on preventing things, not promoting things? So you know, preventing complications, preventing um, you know, looking at preventing problems with VBAC rather than focusing on promoting physiology regardless of how the, what the woman's background is whether she's had a cesarean just promoting physiology in different
1: types absolutely. of absolutely and and there's also looking at what the vbac research has focused on and that has been about pathologizing vbac and mm. focusing on the risk of rupture and how mm. can we mm-hmm. how can we this very been it's been a very paternalized view of how can we choose the women that're going to be the best candidates for vbac like it's like, mm. like like we like it's our job to play god and decide mm. you're going to be good you're not you're a good girl you're a bad girl like it's mm-hmm really ridiculous mm. but that's what the research has been on so much research comes out and i still get the google scholar alerts and i read one i'm like i'm not even going to look at that one that one just goes into that pile because that's just another one of the same stuff which is trying to find the best candidate for VBAC and looking at things that that um increase and they and then focusing on the woman's bodies for that and not realizing not seeing the bigger picture of what they're doing mm. with that by saying that you know you must be to be the prime candidate for VBAC, then you must have either had a vaginal birth before or had a previous VBAC. But well, how are we going to get to the previous VBAC if we can't get the first one done? <laughs> um, you can't be you God. can't be large. Um, but you know, this is just life. Women are bigger. Um, that you you know, you can't be a certain race. Well, what are you gonna do about that? Like, you can't go and change that. You know, if you set, if you put all these factors in there to say, well. Because you're all of these things, that's going to reduce your cesarean, reduce your feedback rate, success rate. So therefore, we're not going to support you. And all the work has also been done on success versus fail, which is something that I'm very passionate about mm-hmm. not using that language. Mm-hmm. Because actually, something I learned through my research process was after my first study, which was um, looking at women's experiences of having a home birth after cesarean. For me, that was all about, um, it was about having that vaginal birth. It was about having that feedback. And women doing it at home were skipping the system so they could get more support to be able to do that. Uh, And and they were having amazing experiences. Um, But I also learned something from that in, in, again, how we see things through the obstetric gaze is that women who maybe had to transfer in because maybe they had a third-degree tear um, or, you know, something else happened, maybe they had a bit of a bleed, um, that from the from our healthcare professional gaze was seen as a failed home birth. Uh-huh. From the woman's point yeah. of view, it was I pushed my baby out of my vagina yes. and I did it at home. I had to go in just yeah. for a little bit of X, Y, and Z, but then I came home again. And it was seen mm-hmm. as a mere blip on the whole birth story. And yet the other gaze was, oh my gosh, you failed because you had to come in and and do this. So that fed into that success and failure language again. And then going into my PhD again, I thought it was all about the vaginal birth. And it was doing the um, qualitative side where I followed women. I had this app designed where women could record their experiences um, after every appointment because I wanted to get in their heads and find out what was going on in their heads after they'd had an appointment. You know, when you go to a doctor and you come back and you're like, oh, shit, why did I say that? Um, (laughs) Why didn't I say that? And you start, you know, having all these thoughts in your head. I wanted that moment, but we don't have that microchip yet that I could put in there. (laughs) So I got women, but women like to talk. So I designed this app where they can tell their stories afterwards and they did. God bless these women. You know, they, they, they did this. I got over 50 odd recordings and then I interviewed them afterwards. And interestingly, about half of the women had a VBAC and half of the women had a repeat cesarean and a repeat emergency cesarean. And I thought, well, this is going to make quite interesting interviews. And sometimes I would turn up to an interview and I didn't know which birth they'd had. It was like, it, it it was so exciting like I'd sit down and be like I don't even know where this story's gonna go because I've heard all these recordings but nothing since the birth
0: uh-huh. and then I've had this
1: interview with them six weeks afterwards and I'm like I want all the juicy details as we were really good at as midwives I'm like tell me whatever you think and there'll be times where I, you know my head would be like so she had a v-bag so she had a v-bag so and like I'm like guessing like double I'm like guessing what she had all the time and then the story could be quite different. And on one day I had these two interviews and in, and on paper they, I'm sure if they had like, you know, if they had those written progress notes, I know it's all on the computer these days, but I'm a bit old school. Like if you, look, if you read those written progress notes, right, they could have said the same thing. Both of these women got to fully dilated and both had a repeat emergency caesarean. So on paper it was the same, but the interviews were so different and the woman's perceptions of what happened and how they felt afterwards were so different. There were two ends of a spectrum and that started sowing the seed of maybe it's not just about pushing your baby out of your vagina. Maybe it's having the option of doing that, but then still retaining your control. Yeah. So the, the biggest difference between both of those stories was one woman, she had no control. No control. Mm. And had a very traumatic story because of that. The other woman, she had all control. And after, I think like after two hours of pushing, she turned around and said, I know the baby's not descending. I am choosing to have a, have a cesarean now, please. And that was so two very very different stories. And from that little seed that was in my head, and when I did the narrative analysis and compared and contrasted all those stories, then I realised it was actually about the four different factors, and not purely about pushing a baby through the vagina. Yet all women wanted the opportunity to be able to try hmm. and to to have that. Yeah. But then at the ultimate experience, depending on how they were treated, and how much. It control they had and how much confidence they had and how active they were in labor and how, what, how good their relationship was. Basically being able to tickle the boxes and then go back and say, and look at, look at it and go, well, I did everything that I could and everything was in my favor. Then this happened and I feel resolved about that. And that's kind of like the cesarean pathway. And so that taught me a lot about my own perceptions because I would have thought that it was all about the birth and, um, if you didn't get that, then there was huge disappointment. So there was a lot of learning for me in that process too. But again, though, the, the, the general literature is it's success or failure. It's a trial and you mm. you succeed in that trial or you fail in that trial. And so that's language I'm very anti um, and I move away from that language.
0: Yeah. Mm.
2: Yeah, it's the malfunctioning women's bodies again, isn't it? Oh, it's just
1: let's blame women. so much easier to blame women and the fact that you get put in a trial is
0: it's already like planting the seed of doubt well i might uh, not be able to achieve this and i might not be good enough and yeah
1: i think the doubt. language trial language. of labor is one of the worst out yeah. there like it's as bad as failure to progress yeah or a failed induction like a trial of labor and and the the the, the reading that really made me think about that was such an old book and i've got it here somewhere called The Silent Knife that came out in the 80s. And they, um, you know, they really describe this trial, like the, this trial is basically the woman is on trial and there's the judge and the jury mm-hmm. and she's just Oof. waiting for like able to go down and say, you're guilty, off, off to Caesarean. Um, oh, I've got goosebumps. Oh, I know. Mental. And you know, when <laughs> yeah. I read that, I was like, Jesus, is exactly what it's like. She had no, you've got no control over that. You're literally just waiting for everyone else to say, you are done you're guilty off you go you can't do this your body's failed again yeah. you didn't make it again yeah. yeah yeah and then all the language is about about trials and and failures and successes and and it just if you're thinking that a woman's already got trauma coming into mm-hmm. planning a feedback and in the feedback survey um and um, and Rachel, you're not a fair bit of work, haven't you, on birth trauma and 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 mm. that kind of work? And I know that generally it's about a third, isn't it, of, of women mm. that have experienced birth trauma? But in the VBAC survey, that was two thirds of women that said that wow. experienced birth trauma. Gosh! So we already know we have a we have a highly traumatized group wow. of women going into their next next birth, and then we're going to just reinforce that with more failed language um, and more and just pushing onto that trauma um, and I think even having that having that language in the first place probably uh, turns a lot of women away from even planning a VBAC um, hmm. yeah. or or sends them out of out of
2: the system I mean a lot of the yeah, home birth absolutely. women looking for home births so or women who have had a previous cesarean and have just decided having looked at it that they don't want to engage with the services yeah. that are going to put them on trial and work against what they're trying absolutely. to do absolutely
1: and that's what the, my home birth study found as well in that a lot of the women there hadn't originally decided to have a home birth it wasn't like a some had but it wasn't at the beginning it's like I'm definitely going to have a home birth but there was this theme of um, trying to negotiate with the hospital and say well I don't want all the things that led to cesarean last time last time mm-hmm. I was induced last time you know list all the cascade of intervention mm-hmm. and women saying, well I don't want that What else can I have? And basically being told, well, it's our way or it's the highway. Like, you can't do, you can't not have those things. We won't negotiate with you. It's our way or it's nothing. And then... Hmm actually on out on the highway they found they find google and they find that there actually are private <laughs> midwives out there that will support them and in the, that initial phone call and as a someone who was a private midwife myself for many years I remember those initial phone calls where women ring up and actually you're the first person to say yes you're the first mm-hmm. person to say I will support you and you're the first person to say I believe in you and that's not yep. what they had for the Pregnancies so far, so yes, that that is certainly an option to, that women take, um, and you know it's it's certainly a valid option if you're looking for for someone to support you. Um, I mean, we have more models of care, more maternity models of care now in the system, and I'm really hopeful that that you know has benefits for people planning a VBAC, but they're not all available for women who are planning a be back either. They're often exactly. risked out, which just drives me insane.
0: <laughs> it, I mean, most we know that most of the women are going through the system. We have tiny home birth rates in Australia, yeah. in the UK. If we go to any of the sort of, I don't know, bigger sort of Western countries or higher income countries, we're having really small, unless we're going up to Scandinavia and the Netherlands. Um, so most of the women, Who are, you know, building up enough strength to even think about VBAC because it's you've got all of this potential trauma from the previous birth, and maybe it's a year ago, maybe it's two years, maybe it's five years ago. So they've then built up all this strength to even discuss it or to do some research. And then they're faced with perhaps they don't have the financial means or they don't have the ability to have a home birth, or they're frightened by that or, you know, partners, family, friends are putting them off because we know that happens. So the majority are going through the system. They've got to this point. What are some of the things that can really support them on that journey through the system?
1: I think it's first up. Um, and, um, you know, I mentioned this in my book when I, I, I break down those four factors and. You know, the, the book is a guide for women. It's written for women. It's not written for midwives, but I think midwives will get a lot out of it. But it's written for women on well, what can you do? What are your options? And I do initially start with looking at trauma and to try and, you know, place their trauma, identify their trauma. And then it's looking at what are all the other things that you can do as well. And, you know, part one of those factors is relationship. And that's really important and thinking of who is going to be on your support team. Mm-hmm who is going to be encouraging you and what is the what is the best kind of person to do that for you and i guess there i then draw on the um, the vbac study that the um, the models of care paper that that we put out in 2020 that that compared the different models of care so fragmented care concentrated care with a doctor constant care with a midwife, and then we we mapped the four factors against them, so such as things like the decision-making, control, um, all types of active labour stuff, birth positioning. We mapped all these different things against it, and overwhelmingly it shows that having constant care with a midwife increased those factors in all of the factors and then when we put them all together you could still see that continuity of care was much higher compared to the other two models of care um and so I kind of explained that and what does that mean what does continuity of care with a midwife look like what are the different models out there and it is written for a UK and American and Australian audience so I've tried to kind of you know look at that as well um I, and really, what is you know what is a midwife? Sometimes, like what what is the benefits that they can do? What do they bring to to you? And what is it that their, their ethos is? And I'm certainly mm. not. um I wouldn't want any opposition to think that I am, I am trying to increase the turf war. It's already there, right? But I'm actually about trying to reduce the turf war. Yeah. And certainly, my work as a as a lecturer one of the subjects that I am the most passionate and that I lead is called collaborative care. Um, and mm. I can jump into that later if you're interested in what we do mm. with that. But we're actually trying to reduce the turf war at the beginning stages. Uh, and mm. that's really important to me. But it's also understanding for women to know, well, where do where are the different um, philosophies of each? Like where, do, where does midwifery come from and where does ob- obstetrics come from? And then understanding if you're looking for a, a vaginal birth then actually a midwife is that is that is her best training and but she can also pick up when things go wrong because they're experts in that too and then they would know how to refer on to the next profession mm-hmm. and that's really important and i try and kind of put that across but I also do then look at you know a few analogies. Of, well, why would you want to have your best team around you? And I was writing that when the Olympics was on, and I took some I took some time off work to write. It was locked down, so I couldn't go anywhere. I feel guilty about you know not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And the Olympics, were And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm reading all these comments, all these hurtful comments that were, that women said they'd received. And if you were really thinking of being an elite athlete, and I must say, I never have been an elite athlete, so I could not say I've ever had a coach. I can speak for myself. I'm
0: definitely not there. So you're all right. You're in good company.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I did date an elite athlete once, so maybe I've got a bit of an idea. There you go. It's a connection. Certainly not in my my field. (laughs) I hope my husband doesn't hear that. Um, But anyway. (laughs) actually he knows all about it so I guess imagine if you were the athlete you know there's the Olympics that that it's on or the Paralympics that I must say I love even more and you're looking at who's going to be your coach who's going to be your team and you're doing a bit of a coach interview and you go to one coach and you're like okay so I really want to do the 100 meter sprint this is what I love this is what I'm, I'm passionate about people have told me I should do this are you the coach for me and the coach turns around and says well You could do that, but your alternative is you could just sit back and watch it as well. Um, And also, you're probably going to die by the time you get to 50 (laughs) metres. I I think it's likely. You've actually got a a risk of having a heart attack halfway along the race. That could happen. So maybe if you just let me make that decision for you, you sit back and watch the race. I think it's much more safer for you. Well, there's vinyl, and then you go and interview someone else and they're like, "Actually, I really believe in you. I can already see you standing on that podium. And even if you don't make it to the podium, you are going to feel so good about yourself because you did the best you could. And I'm going to support you on the way and I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to tell you about all the different exercises you should be doing. I'm going to be there cheering you on and I'll be there at the end to give you a hug, regardless of what position you come in, because I know that that's going to be the best journey for you. Like what kind of coach would you go to i know which one i would go to i'd want the person that's going to be my cheerleader now we might say not everyone's going to do the olympics but women these days we don't have 10 plus births we're actually only going to do this a few times in our life we might be doing that fewer times than some olympians go and do that race so why would we not want to be picking an olympic version of our team and that's where we then look at the research and go, well, who really are the best people to support me in that team? I want someone that if I do have something happen along the way, they've got some good collaboration and they've got some people that are going to help me if I really need that help. But who am I going to, who's going to be there to support me? And that's really how I kind of approach that chapter is who are the best people to support you based on, on the evidence and based on their philosophies and based on what they're going to bring to it. Um, so I'm not about saying that obstetricians shouldn't be looking after women planning a VBAC but if women are really wanting to have a a normal vaginal birth and that's their goal of having a VBAC then I think midwives are experts in that field
0: oh yes I love that god that was great thank you bloody awesome oh I love that
1: My Um, but I do look at the other things as well and I think there are other certainly other aspects that women need to look at you know they need to look at how are they going to build that confidence, especially thinking and knowing that so many women are coming from trauma? And as someone who did have a VBAC, it is really hard to know that your body can do it because mm-hmm. it hasn't done it before. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to know that it has. And regardless of regardless of what the reason for that v, for that previous cesarean was, and, and mine was for a breach. And so we would have thought, oh, that's kind of normal. And, you know, that's not because your body failed. It's just the position that your baby was in. He was in the Xbox position, you know, sitting there like <laughs> looking straight out with his legs up there and still the same now at nearly 15. I've never um, heard that before. The Xbox that's what position. I just imagine he's a gamer it. of gamers and he's just sitting there. <laughs> and <playing around. laughs> um And. You know, in in theory, you'd look at that and go, well, there hadn't really been language about failure at all during that time. But Mm. I still felt and I was still really traumatised by that experience. Um, I remember waking up in the night and looking at him and going, how do I know you're mine? How do I know you're mine? He was never separated from me, even in theatres. But it was just really difficult to, to... really understand my birth or feel that I had be, had had that birthing experience um and you know when you don't have trust in your body and I think as women oh my god we're never told to trust our bodies because we're either too mm-hmm. fat or too thin our boobs are too big or they're not big enough or they're the wrong mm-hmm. size, or they're not equal
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and you know um, we're not pretty enough or we're too pretty like we can never just be us, us. and be happy with that uh, and I can't, and I'm a woman that's had weight issues on and off and and I know that I can't, you know, I haven't reached that peak of being absolutely happy all the time or feeling really confident in your body. And so when you don't have confidence in your body in the first place and you've been told that you failed, how can you really believe that you can also mm-hmm. do have have a vaginal birth? Maybe you're not strong enough, maybe you're not gonna, maybe you're not gonna be able to, you know, get to the end. And so I think it's very normal for us as women to take that on as more failure and more belief that we can't do that. And it's really hard to build that confidence. And, again, I think you need people around you who are going to help you build that confidence, but also increasing your knowledge, like learning more about it um, and realising that the things that happened kind of happened to you and not because of you. And that's Mm -hmm. about really increasing that knowledge, and that knowledge then increases your confidence in birth.
0: Mm-hmm. and then surrounding
1: that by that. So that's something that's really, really important. Um, and another thing I really addressed was was the control factor, and there's a few things that, in the book that look at that, but one of them is, is I've written a whole bit about feminism and about reproductive justice because I often hear, especially in the home birth field and certainly in, in a lot of the birth groups I've been part of, is midwives and doulas say to women, you can just say no. But like when you turn up and they tell you you know you're going to get on a CTG and you say no I want to have intermittent monitoring you can just say no. But really as a feminist researcher and all of my work has been done as a feminist researcher there's there's no way you can say no mm-hmm. when someone turns yeah. around and says well okay but you could have a dead baby and that will yeah. be your fault. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Or any other type of coercion is done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then again, how does that then happen later? Like what happens after that is the woman looks back and go, I should have just said no. Yeah. It yeah. was my fault. The blame I again, the guilt. Because I didn't say no. And so I wrote yeah. this whole big thing about, about feminism, about patriarchy in, in medicine and, and in, in midwifery to really help women to understand actually it, it is hard to just say no. You know, it's not oh. your fault if... Yeah if that's not, if that's not able to, what can you then do to set it up so that you're in the best position and that you're getting your your voice heard and you can make the choices that are most important to you. And that's how I move that chapter on to then explore what things women can do for that. But I I didn't want to say, just another thing to go out there and just say to women, you know, you could just say no, because yeah. I've been there, I've seen that, and I know even as a midwife, there's been times where it's been difficult to advocate because of the because of the system or having that stuff thrown on me, um, and then also being a, as a as a woman and how awful that was to have that thrown on me all the time when I was um, pregnant with a very short interpregnancy interval, mm. um, and how challenging that was. So yeah, that there, I think it's you know really looking at understanding where you're at as a woman in the whole big system mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. realizing that you were, weren't to blame for all that stuff but then what can you do to move forward and um, with that extra knowledge and that extra fire in your belly to go okay actually the system's at fault what do i need to do to get the birth that i want um and you know i've looked at how to make a better cesarean how to make how to work towards a better Vaginal birth, but also a better cesarean birth, because you can't guarantee when you're supporting women planning mm-hmm. a VBAC that you're going to 100% have a VBAC. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I've never heard someone say that, but I reckon there probably a few people around that could say that. But uh, you can't guarantee that. Mm. Even in a high VBAC country, if we look at Finland, which has the highest VBAC rate of about 55%, I think it was 50-something percent, well, that's still you know, the other half of women are not having a me bag. So, yeah. you know, you can't guarantee, you can't guarantee that. And when you look at studies um, that are just looking at the intention, so what type of birth women want at the beginning, which we don't know with the with the Finland number, um, the highest we can get to is about 80%. And to be fair, that's out of hospital home birth. So with a midwife, so like it, even there's even twenty percent there that are not going to be able to have a VBAC. So, you know, I, I wanted to really put in how do you make a better, how do you make a better trauma-free, trauma-informed cesarean, mm-hmm. um, as well as planning for a VBAC. Mm. Yeah,
2: and that is so important. I found women I've cared for have done exactly that. Particularly, you know, women who are having VBACs have really wanted to have a really clear cesarean plan you know and we've talked about and they've had things highlighted and read that if I end up having a cesarean these are the things that are really important and then just having that has allowed them to kind of relax because that's dealt with that's done and if I end up down that track everybody knows what I want and how to advocate for that.
1: Yeah and and as a midwife supporting women in that I've actually found to have those Um, most important things identified to be actually Mm. very empowering even as the midwife being the advocate Mm. because i know in times i've transferred in and to be able to have a conversation and i've had conversations with anesthetists with obstetricians and with other midwives with that bit of paper and say obviously she's not having her most ideal birth because we are here (laughs) so (laughs) we're not and we're also you're also planning to go to a cesarean now so we're not having her most ideal But I have had a conversation with her about what is the most important. And last time was really traumatic. So these are the things. So can I have a conversation with you about how we can make this the best cesarean that she can have? And I've never had a negative response to that. I've only had people just kind of go, oh, my gosh, yes, what can I do? What can I do to help? And Mm -hmm. healthcare providers, we don't go into this to make people's lives shitty. Like we actually, you know, we want to make lives better. And that goes across the board. Yeah, but. sometimes we're we're challenged and we're put into fearful situations and then some react with quite nasty comments but I think when you then actually empower healthcare providers as well and say okay we know where we're at right now we're going to this but for the woman and her partner this is the most important things that she wants can we what can we do together to make sure that doesn't happen to make sure these things Mm -hmm. do happen and that she's not re traumatized from last time and I've only had a really good um, really good conversations and I think I, I think I might have put that in the book too about how empowering it is even for your healthcare providers to know that because they really want they really Absolutely. do want to help you get that and if then you feel afterwards you feel look I ticked all those boxes I did everything I could I did have a repeat cesarean But actually this time round, I got to do X, Y, and Z. My baby wasn't removed from me and I I was Mm -hmm. able to have skin to skin and I was able to do this and blah, blah, blah. And I know how important those things are. I know even though I had a cesarean, I did in my first birth, which was unplanned, I had actually done this little like project thing beforehand that I'd read in a book and I can't find it in there again, but I did. And it was all about, you know, planning what would I want for my vaginal birth? What do I want for if I had to have a a cesarean? And I was planning my first. So there was no, at that point, I I, I didn't really think this was going to happen. But there were certain things I put in there that um, I then completely forgot about. And we have a blended family. So I married my husband. He already had three. And they lived with us uh, all the time when they were growing up. And then I also had my in-laws and all my family were in the UK. So I didn't have my mum or my dad or my brother or my close cousins to be there at the time. So it was really only me, my new husband, and um, and kids and in-laws. And I knew that in the room, if I had to go for a cesarean in a hospital, in the room would be everyone else. And I didn't want my my new baby to go from me to there without being with me first Mm. and it was Mm. a bit weird and it sounds a bit strange but it was this was something this was something uh, the first one for the for the two of us like it was just a different part of the family Mm. it was a new part of family it was my first baby maybe not his maybe not their first sibling but it was my first baby Mm. And I wanted to be a bit selfish about that um and then when I did go for a cesarean and who didn't he didn't get taken off me. He kept with me the whole time. And when we got wheeled in to my room, he was still there draped over my breast. It's the safest no way. way. No one's coming absolutely like you know my mother was like oh <laughs> go, not going, not going there <laughs> I do know one cousin say did you have to share a nipple shot um, so and like, like, you know I was on drugs and taking shots at, <laughs> on all those pain meds um I don't remember taking those photos but apparently I shared them on my on my throughout my phone um uh, <laughs> you know like I, I got that and and months later I found that little plan that I'd written and I looked at it and I went actually I got all of that And that helped me really look back and go, uh, you know, okay, it wasn't exactly what I had, but I actually did get some control Mm. during that time, and that was really important to me. So that kind of started that process for me to think about how important that is. And, again, there's no blame. And, And if women read the book and their actual choice for their best birth is to plan a repeat cesarean, then absolutely go for it. You still deserve, those women still deserve Continutive care with a midwife mm-hmm. still deserve <laughs> respectful maternity care and to have as much support as a woman planning a VBAC as well. So I've tried absolutely. to absolutely. Kind of, you know, that's really what I I came out of my my PhD. Still an absolute VBAC advocate, but also realizing that there's much more to it. Um, and you know, when I look at that confidence stuff, and and that really matches with a lot of the research that says our ideal candidates are people that have had previous v well why is that like that can really come down to that confidence factor because yeah. those women have already pushed a baby out through her vagina whether that yeah. was pre or after the cesarean but they've done it and so that's not actually about trialing the scar on the uterus it's about getting the head involved yeah. like they're focusing on the wrong bloody organ here right it's not the uterus; <laughs> yes. it's the brain yes we know that as midwives and so really if women have already done that once of course their feedback rates are going to be sky high after that because they've already got the confidence they know they can do it and that's one of the things we have to really focus on as midwives and I think midwives are very good at, mm-hmm. at building women's confidence in their own bodies mm. absolutely I'm oh. jumping all over the place I do apologize.
0: No, Hazel, no. it's lovely. And I'm just I'm processing it all and I'm like, when's your book coming out? <coughs> <laughs> oh my God. Now look what
1: you've done, Katie. <laughs> Jesus. I'm sorry. You're right. Oh no, it's gone in the windpipe. And I did. i am just going to get my voice back. That's okay. Take your Fine. time. No rush. I wasn't expect oh. Ah, okay. Oh no, I think I can answer that question now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, the book is coming out on the 5th of September. And I really like that date because it's the day before my son's birthday and he was the one I had the cesarean with. And that was the the date that started it all off. So 5th of September, I've got a launch um, party in Western City Uni at, at Parramatta Campus. Um, I'm just waiting for confirmation on the room, and then I'm going to put that out there. And then it looks like there's even going to be a bit of a book tour, which is blows my mind Ooh. that people are interested in this, but um, I'm excited. And so I'm just organising some dates now. So it looks like there's going to be some Canberra dates, maybe even Melbourne. Um, there's certainly some Sydney ones around Sydney up here in the Blue Mountains. And then I'm actually off to the ACM Cairns conference, and um, I'll, I'll have the books there for midwives and i'm going to do some community events while i'm up there as well so um oh and then in the sunshine coast too so there's a few different events oh, you? Coming up. yeah Octavia? so i'm coming up to the capia conference in oh, I'm going october I'm they're doing that on the sunshine coast and then there's a few community events that look like they're going to happen as well oh i see you there so, yeah yeah that'll be awesome um and yep so i'll be having the the, the book with me and it will be also available on kindle um And so you'll be able to get it through Amazon and Kindle, but I'm going to get a whole load coming over because my publishers who are wonderful, and they're in the U.S. So if you try and get it straight from there, obviously you've got Ah. the shipping, but it will be on Amazon and then I'll also have it. So, uh, um, yeah, and I actually chose those publishers because I met them. Um, They're a small publishing house. And it's Kathleen Kendall Tackett, which
0: ah, um, yes. you know, some of you mm-hmm. might, might
1: well know and probably yes. use my mm-hmm. work. Uh, and she's an amazing woman. And I met her down at Warrnambool. She wrote this beautiful book about, really simple book about how to publish to the general audience. And I I inhaled that book. It was like an e-book that I just read all the way through. And that that was as I was finishing my PhD and I was thinking, I kind of really want to put this out I want to give it back to women because again, yeah. as a oh, feminist researcher, yeah. and I was using um you know the transformative model is that it it's got to go that final step. Women gave me their stories,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they they did the app for me, they I interviewed them, they did my survey, and then I've got to give it back in a way that can then give forward to other women. And some women will read research articles, absolutely, and you know, most of them on open access. So that's good. But I just wanted to to have and we asked, you know, I kind of asked women, what kind of resources do you want? And what do you what do you use? And it surprised me, the books were still quite high up there um, mm. uh, on a resource that is really used. And so then I looked around and there wasn't really anything about VBAC in the kind of way that I was looking at doing. So mm. I then approached um Kathleen when she was uh down at Warrnambool with me and had a chat with her, and she's just wonderful. And I loved always the artwork that she used, and that's her mm. son who artist and oh, he also I didn't runs know that. Business. um so I said to her would you be interested in in this book and um we had some conversations and then at the end of I, I submitted my PhD in the November October November time and by the December, I'd sent them off my research proposal, my book proposal, um and got a contract. Um wow. and then it was submitted within the year of that. So I just they were just so good. And I love his artwork. His is the the woman at the front with the with the fist up, and then mm-hmm. there's actually artwork throughout the book as well that he's he's done with different birthing positions and stuff like that in the in the active labor chapter. so um, but then I wanted as well, because, Because, I mean, it wasn't that many years ago I got this data from women, but I wanted to, I believe in storytelling. And and although I was giving some evidence but also some storytelling, I really wanted women to be able to read and go, oh, I identify with that person. So I put a post out on Facebook and Insta and I just said, look, do you want to fancy sharing your story in my book? And um, there was some amazing responses from all over the world And it's now got 15 stories in there from women as well. And so they share their VBAC stories and they're from the Netherlands, all throughout Australia. One's in the UK, one's from the US. Um, And they share either a very long or a short story or anything in between and some photos. Um, And I'm very proud to say that three of them are from Bachelor of Midwifery students at my uni. And we have got one from her first year, second year and third year. Uh, and they've got their stories in there as well. And so, some of the places that I'm going to, if I can, I'm linking in with some of the women that shared their stories in the book, and getting them to come along to some of the events as well, so they can share why they why they put their story in there and what they think about it. So, you know, and 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 they've all got something a little bit different about them. Like it might be that they had a breech birth, or they might have had a larger BMI. I don't really like using that term, but you know, that's what that is used in in maternity. Hmm. um they might have planned a home birth so they've all got something a little bit different so that women could read the book and go oh I I identify with that person um or there might be that that, that they're not all white as well so I I did reach out to to women say well can I share your story as well and so they could get the story so that women of 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 um different backgrounds can look at that and go okay I I identify with that woman as well Hmm. um so yeah. So I'm, I'm I'm excited about that part um, that, you know, it's got all my it's got all the research. It's got my research, but then it's also then got women's stories. And that's probably the bit I love the most, to be honest.
0: <laughs> Sounds fantastic. This is definitely a resource that is needed. And I would agree, like you've written it for women, but it's we need to read it as midwives and hmm. and supporters of women during this phase. It's it's really important. Oh, and sounds like so many, so many chapters. I'm like, I can't wait to get my hands on it. That's why I was yeah. like, when's it coming out? And I didn't mean to give you a complete yeah, like water it's fit. Not, not long. Not
1: long. <laughs> not I still long. don't think, and maybe Rachel can re- can relate to this, but I still don't think it's actually going to be true until I actually hold it. Oh, like actually get yeah. a physical. Is that was that what happened with you, Rachel?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's not real until it's in your hand. And then if then you can't remember having created it like I still read I still read bits of my book and go oh I have no memory of writing that at all I have like it's like read it's like reading somebody else's work it's weird
1: yeah I had the the final edits come back to me and Kathleen had done the final editing and she's got a very good eye and uh, and I was doing some stuff and I thought oh did I actually put that in there oh not too bad <laughs> <laughs> oh, good on oh, you. you yeah oh okay um and uh yeah just kind of went through her editing but yeah you do I, I'm already kind of going did I is that in there and did I put that in there and um but yeah I, I think when I finally hold the copy that's that's what I'm kind of most excited about getting hold of because yeah like it's, it's better different.
2: than your thesis I also I found it better more exciting than finishing my thesis that was yeah. a, that was just to oh god get it finished
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and nerve wracking too because you know like I don't know if it's gonna be the right book for everyone and there's gonna be people that potentially you know disagree with some of the stuff in there as long as they agree with with you know a few things that's fine um, I've gone a little bit out there I, I think you know in the in the book you can stretch it further than you can with a with a PhD can't you you can kind of go into some of your own yeah. little areas that you're interested in as well and so. Um, that was kind of the freedom. Was actually quite fun to be able to to be able to do that. Yeah, and you know, some people aren't going to like
2: it, and that means you know, it's not good if it's not offending somebody. So
1: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I I feel like I'm kind of moving into that area now. So after like post PhD, I've been doing the the birth experience survey or the birth experience study, which has now become the largest study that's been out there on maternity experiences because we got over 8,000 women, 8,084 women completed the survey Gosh, across wow. Australia.
2: I saw that on social media, yeah.
1: It's huge. it's really huge. So we're doing the analysis now and, um, you know, we're looking at lots of different areas, but one of the first areas we looked at and we did the analysis of and the paper is currently under review is on obstetric violence. So in the in the survey we asked some quite challenging questions we asked a lot of so we're going we're going to be having data forever um but we asked a lot of information and and we asked some quite difficult questions too we asked about birth trauma but we asked about uh, obstetric violence and we even I even put a definition in there on what it was and this survey actually is a collaboration of with the directors of Birth Time, but also um, about 10 other maternity organisations and professional organisations that, that are on board with it. They all went through the survey and had a look we, we, and, and contributed their parts to it. Um, and they were really happy for us to ask these quite challenging questions. And unfortunately, um, the one in 10 women said yes or maybe to obstetric violence. And we know that's it's not a common terrible. term. Yeah, one in ten women. Wow. And then there were 626 comments to analyse, which we did. Wow. Um, we were a little team that did that. My husband's also a research assistant, so actually watching him go through all those comments, he did mm. the initial analysis and then I went and did a secondary analysis and uh, there were they were traumatising to read, but obviously not half as traumatising as it was to experience it. And Mm -hmm. I really felt that I had to honour the women that I basically asked this really difficult question and they'd had to rip open their wound, share that story, and then just carry on with their life. And I felt Mm -hmm. that that probably was the hardest question I asked. So I deserved, I I had to honour them by analysing that question first. So that is um, under review right now. And it is actually the first paper that will come out that actually states that Obstetric violence does exist in a high-income country because there's a lot of research out there that looks at everywhere else, you know, it happens everywhere else that is not has, you know, that is not us. Um, but this paper's, you know, really putting my head out on the chopping block for that one to say that yes, it happens here. And this is the description of it, and these are women's experiences of it. And so the quotes are in there, it's a content analysis, so it's really looking at you know, it has all the co- quotes in there, and it's going to be a difficult one to read. I still find it challenging to read, and I wrote it. <laughs> um, mm. But it's, um, you know, it was it was myself, it was it was my husband Warren, and then also Hannah, and the three of us worked on this paper uh, and put it out. And it's it's it's. I, I mean, I hope it cause co- I hope it opens up the conversation. Yeah. You know, I, I and if there are people that are not very happy with it. That might make me happy because I think we need to have that conversation about mm-hmm. the fact that it's here and what is it, and that we can't, and the things that it brings up are uncomfortable conversations that need to be had. And I think a lot of people won't like it. And it and it wasn't um, it wasn't attacking one profession over another. Both professions were included in descriptions um so you know there are things that have been done by midwives things that have been done by by doctors and you know i think it's something that we need to 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 look at and so yeah i'm going to be <laughs> that's kind of something that we that, that is coming out hopefully in the not too distant future um and you know the, there's a great journal called violence against women that that has published on this before um mm-hmm. as well as other other um gendered violence um topics. And yeah, I think it's going to be quite a challenging one to come out of out of mm. the best survey, but I think it's something that we really need to to talk about. So yes, that'll be
2: Yeah, it's important to get those voices out there. Really important.
1: Yeah. And it just blew my mind when I realized that it wasn't really anything out there already from other high income countries. Um, about really identifying what it looks like um, and what those experiences are and probably just because people haven't been asked Um, but we did we we thought we would ask it and and women responded thank you for doing that yeah well thank you for the women's even for 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 saying it and you know we had the option in that one with a maybe because it is a Uh, you know a a term that isn't used as often as birth trauma is so Mm -hmm. you know and so we had we included all of those comments in there as well to really break down what does it look like and there were three different themes that came out all of their own sub or categories i should say uh, content analysis and all of their own subcategories um the that really break it down so i hope that's something in the future that will will cause more of a discussion um and potential changes because we don't have we don't have it recognised in Australia, even as a form of gendered violence, you know, in the yep. big document that came out looking at gendered violence um, in women and children for the next 10 years and they have, you know, and I was, I was looking, I included it in the in the background. Obstetric well, violence isn't even mentioned, yet there were countries out there, like seven of the 11 Latin American countries that have a law against obstetric violence, so we've, Whoa. you know, there, there are places that have looked at this and have legislated against it, and we could do that. It would be a challenging path, but I think it's potentially something that we need to really look at, and this is the first step at identifying it.
0: Absolutely. This is the first step. This is the, the way that we make change in, in a country like Australia, and then that you know, will hopefully lead on for more work, We'll have to bring you back on, I think, Hazel, to to discuss that further.
1: Yeah, yeah, happy to, happy to when that comes out. <laughs> Thank
0: you so much for the work you are doing. There is, uh, there's so much there, and I think you've covered so many important points, and I think really important to to get our hands on your book, but also um, the fact that you've written it, and I'm really appreciative of that because, like you say, it's research is not always. It may be free to access, but it's not accessible in the way that all of us read or digest information. And, you know, from what we get through this podcast, there is a huge want and a lust and a desire and a need for more of this information that is framed from how you have gone about looking at it. Um, And I think we talk about, like you were saying, empowering women and and standing up for yourself. But I'm so glad I know I'm backtracking, but I just wanted to say I'm so glad you put in that chapter about how bloody difficult that is in that situation, Um, because it's all well and good saying, just say no but it's not easy when you're in that situation and also not easy when you're in the middle of labor and we shouldn't have to be making those comprehensive decisions. So I wanted to say thank you. I wanted to highlight that point that is in your book and I can't wait to read that chapter as well. Um, And it's been, it's really fascinating to have this research that's out there and really important.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you, Hazel, for sharing all of your amazing work with us. And yeah, same, Katie, I just really love that point and a real golden nugget. We need to stop telling women to just say no and leave it at that and, you know, and not uh, not address the fact that it's almost impossible. And, you know, it's it's victim blaming, isn't it, really? It's kind of you should just say no and then it shouldn't really the people shouldn't be doing it you know obstetric violence and coercion shouldn't be happening it's not up to women to stop it from happening it's actually up to care providers and the systems they're in to stop that
1: yeah absolutely
0: thank you for being on thanks for being in the cauldron stirring up some bubbles it has been a bloody <laughs> treat thanks hazel
1: <laughs> thank you for
2: having thank me thank you I'll, and i'll see you at the conference on the sunshine coast
0: hope you enjoyed this wonderful episode with hazel please share this on your socials and tell your friends this needs to be heard thank you again for your beautiful reviews you guys are just awesome the cauldron is growing and it's down to you but don't fear it's a magical cauldron and can fit in many many more of us so go on if you haven't already tell apple what you think of us And if you listen on a platform where you can't leave a review, then please share a story on your socials or tell a few friends to listen in. Everyone needs some nuggety goodness. You can also support us further to keep content coming at you by donating via Patreon. All details on how to do this are in the show notes, as well as over at our Instagram at The Midwives Cauldron. Thank you to all of you for your ongoing support. We are, as always... And honestly, thrilled to have you with us. We will see you next time with another fabulous episode. So, of course, this just leaves us with the bloopers. I can't
2: work out how to turn up my sound. Sorry. right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is it. This is what goes on, then. So is one of us. (laughs) Listen very carefully. Can you put headphones in? Oh, it doesn't work with the speaker. Have you taken over my sound? Yep, I definitely have the ability to take over your sound in your computer sitting here in Switzerland. That's weird. It's got a little blockage sign on it. Is Okay. It. Yeah. You might have to bring the computer right up to your face and see to. just like your ear hole.
1: <laughs> At least I've got my microphone off. right next to me, so I, I think I'm,
0: I've, you, I'm close enough. You sound great. I can hear. I'll be able to hear once the um, fire's finished getting put on. Must be freezing. Reedy's got a hoodie on or is he scared to be on camera in case I start um, <laughs> putting this live <laughs> he's live streaming? It's freezing. He's got a hoodie on but he's also got shorts on which annoys me
2: because if It's Queensland.
1: <laughs> Queensland. <laughs> Yeah, how can it really be that cold where you are, Rachel? I'm in the Blue Mountains. We know how to do
2: cold. <laughs> oh, yeah, you do proper cold. But then because we don't do proper cold, we don't know how to manage cold. So we don't have like proper heating or anything like that.
0: No. It's yeah. bloody cold where Rachel lives when it gets cold, though. <laughs> I know. I can remember that. Oh, there we go. Fabulous. Um, Rachel, are you going to introduce and start or would you like me to? oh you can all right great just your job well i know but the times when i do do it she moans at me so and tells me (laughs) that i've taken over so just have to check these days each time right (laughs) wondering which of my courses is for you breastfeeding and lactation the fundamentals has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs this course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning case studies and some pretty tough at times quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks it also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? Currently, around 80-96% to of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just 8 weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to. Learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term. I believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long. Knowledge is power. That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum. Totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers.